Amen. Good morning. Last week, uh, we ended the time, and I really asked you to think about this. If you weren't here last week, this is what I asked you to think about. Do you have the peace of Christ in your heart, and are you willing to help others have the peace of Christ? It was a simple question. And I think in our world today, that is something that, um, as we talked about last week, is going to be sorely needed in the time to come, is the very peace of Christ in our hearts. And uh, it's really... uh, I think the world has always been a, trage- a tragedy in a great way, in need, or, need of a great Savior, uh, but I think the world is going to need more of this, not less of it in the future. Today, we're going to go to the next chapter, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has entered in uh, after we read about John the Baptist and his introduction to the Messiah. Jesus is here, and this is the great temptation of Christ. These are the three temptations of Christ. It's a passage that um, deserves a ton of study, a ton of uh, just understanding. Today, I want to give you just a little bit of an introduction to that. We're going to read it, and I want to start connecting it to other stories because the temptation of Christ is not read isolated in the Scripture. It's actually connected to a big chunk of the Pentateuch. I'm going to show you that today, and I want to show you the reason why. But It's one thing to have the peace of Christ in your heart, but the question is, I want you to have the peace of Christ, but how do you have the peace of Christ? How do we get the peace of Christ in our heart? That's that's the question I'm going to ask you today. And the answer is really simple. You're going to see a recurring theme. I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but you'll be able to figure it out. I'm going to say it over and over and over, and when we're done, you're going to be like, that's how you have the peace of Christ. It's actually a really simple set of instructions that's very hard to understand and very hard to live out. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's start right away. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to go through 11. It's in, you know, it's in your Bible, in the book of Matthew, strangely, ironically, if you want to pull out your Bible. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. There we are. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down. For for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, the Messiah, and and they will lift you up. Uh, in their hands, so you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So Satan says, I'll give you all this if you'll just bow down and worship me. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So three tests, three temptations. And let me, let's just, right at the very, very beginning, remember, it's interesting, the Spirit of God is the one who actually led Jesus into the wilderness, okay? It wasn't Satan. Satan didn't start the temptation. God did. The Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness for, for 40 days, Okay? Now, I am no expert on not eating, as you can tell. But if you are 
not eating for 40 days, my guess is you're hungry. That's just, I'm just totally taking a stab at this, but you know, anybody, if someone has fasted for 40 days, let me know, but I'm pretty sure you're hungry. So his first temptation is he's hungry, he's starving to death. Okay? It's interesting, there's a tie, I didn't tell the first services, but there's a tie, Esau, remember Esau comes in and he's hungry, you know, and he sells his birthright for some food. So there's a little tie there, but anyway, I didn't tell the first service, so now you're much smarter than they are. Anyway, but here's Jesus, he comes in, and Satan comes in and says, hey, you're the Messiah, you have the power to turn these stones into bread, why don't you do that? Come on. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, right, but by the very word of God. Where does he get that? Well, it's interesting, it's in Deuteronomy. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, let's look at that. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says this, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, are you guys starting to see the theme? So that you may live and increase and may enter in and possess the land the Lord promised on the oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or, you would, uh, whether or not you would keep his commands. Are you catching this? He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that, the man, that man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So it's interesting, I want you to pick this up. Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food. It represents Israel who spent 40 years wandering in the desert, okay? And in that time, Moses is giving them, Moses, this is Moses talking at, the very, at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the final book of the Pentateuch. He's giving them the final commands. He's giving the final commands to Israel before they go and take possession of the land after 40 years in the wilderness. And he basically says, Keep God's commands. Remember God. Worship God. That's what he's saying. Keep it. Remember the word of God. Remember the word of God. Remember the word of God. Does Israel succeed at that? No. Does Jesus, Jesus comes on scene and he is the very representative of God. He is the very representative. He's the perfect Israel. He goes for 40 days and 40 nights, not for 40 years, but it's a representation, 40 years, 40 nights, and he does keep the very word of God. Do you get that? Do you see it? Then the next, uh, the next temptation comes, and that's where Satan basically takes him up onto a high point of the temple, and he's like, throw yourself down. And the angels, because you're the Messiah, the angels are going to grab you. And, and it's interesting, Jesus says, he quotes, and he says basically, don't test the Lord. It is not right for us to test the Lord. What that means is this. How many of you have ever had that mother, grandmother, aunt, whatever, um, that says, you know, and you're, and you're talking back to them, and they say, don't test me. Don't test me. I had that, you know, growing up. I remember one time my brother, uh, we had to do our own laundry in our house, and my brother hadn't done his laundry, and my mom comes in and goes, why haven't you done the laundry yet, you know? And he goes, mom, mom, you know, um, I, I got a great excuse. She's like, don't test me. You need to do the laundry. And then the funny thing, he goes, well, mom, there's a spider in there. And my mom, with her brilliance, reacts this way, you're going to think spiders. And my brother, in his brilliance, goes, you're right, I'm thinking about spiders right now. Yeah, it was funnier later. Anyway. So, what, what's, what Jesus is saying 
here is, don't test me. He says, don't put the Lord your God to a, through a test. The Lord is allowed to test us, but we don't test him. We don't test him in a way, we don't push his buttons. That's what it means. We don't push his buttons. And what Jesus is really doing, he's on this temple, and Satan on the high point, and, we, and by the way, scholars have debated this. We don't know if he's having visions of this uh, or, or what. I mean, after not eating for 40 days, 40 nights, maybe he's having weird visions. I don't know. Or if Satan literally took him up there. There's all kinds of like uh, questions on that. But anyway, I think he was physically up there. He's up there. He's like, throw yourself down, and you won't even get hurt. And Jesus is like, yeah, we don't put the Lord our God to the test. In fact, here he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says this. See if you can catch the theme. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. And take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. They switched the slide right then. Do, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the, the stipulations and decrees he has given you. So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 here. So he's, create, he's quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. Don't test the Lord your God. Now it's interesting. Uh, I, I just want to make it quick because in this passage it says, uh, the Lord your God is a jealous God. It's the same type of jealousy he has that a, a parent has uh, for their child. It's like, I want to love you. I want you to love me. I want you to be in community with my family. And if you spit and curse at my family and everything, then you're out. You're not in my family anymore. It's ultimately the, the whole human story. Interestingly enough, Oprah Winfrey quotes this passage as the reason she doesn't believe in Christianity anymore. She can't fathom a God that's jealous. All I can say is I can't fathom a God I can create in my mind. I can't fathom a God where I get to make up the rules on what he gets to do. But this God is so passionate, he sent his only son to come and rescue us. It's an amazing story. And to ignore that and focus in on this little verse like that, I think is, is, uh, is, is deeply troubling to me. But anyway, all that to say is this. Jesus is using the word of God against Satan. Turn the food, turn the stones into bread so you can eat, so you have food. Throw yourselves off the temple, you will not die, you will have life. Bow down and worship me, and I will give you power. Food, life, and power. This is what humanity is basically pursuing in the absence of God. Food, life, and power. And interestingly enough, the king of the universe comes to, to the earth. He can do anything he wants. He can do anything he wants, and guess what he does? When the tempter comes and tempts him, he doesn't use his, his power. He doesn't use his authority. He doesn't use any of that. What does he do? He uses the word of God. Why? Because the command is, remember the word of God. Trust and obey God. Word of God. Trust and obey God. Worship the Lord your God. Serve no one else. Worship God. That's it. Do you guys get the theme? Are you seeing it? All right. Yeah, remember last week? All right. If you weren't here last week, just say I right. And you have like, I don't know why I'm saying it. All right. No one's going to say it? All right. Matt, I didn't hear you. Oh, I'm going to call you out. Yeah, he's just going to lift his hand up. I can't talk. But that's what it is. 
The very living God, breathing God, comes on earth and he uses the word of God against Satan. He doesn't use his power. He doesn't use his authority. He just uses God's authority. It says in the word of God, don't test God. Man does not live on bread alone. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan get gone. Guess what? Satan leaves and what happens? The angels come and take care of him. And it's not on Jesus' power. That was the will of God. The will of God wasn't for Jesus to throw himself off the temple right then. Actually, the will of God was for him to die on a cross and raise three days later. Satan doesn't see that uppercut coming. And that's what you have going on here. The temptations of Christ illustrate very clearly the word of God and its power over the dark forces and dominion that take us down every day. That's the message. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, there's a powerful passage here. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, here's an interesting thing about this passage right here, this verse. The Hebrew words for uh, uh, to work it and take care of it are the exact same words that we use in Hebrew to say worship and obey. Now, it's just a question, is the verb referring to the garden or to God? If it's referring to God, which many New Testament or Old Testament uh, theologians and Hebrew scholars say, yeah, it's probably referring to God here because of the, the, uh, uh, the gender of the verb. This is probably supposed to say, then the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to worship and obey, referring to God as the verb, to worship and obey. And the reason we believe that is because the very next verse is the first command God gives uh, humans, gives Adam specifically. This is what he commanded the man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So he says, worship and obey me, no one else. Here's my command. You get to eat from anything, anything in the garden. I mean, you can eat from any tree in Happy Valley, but you can't touch this one tree. Dude, I am like, I'm a rebel, but I think I could have followed that one command, right? Actually, after learning about myself 40 plus years, yeah, I probably would have failed too. That's it. So worship and obey me. Trust me. Trust me. There's an implicit in the trusting of me. And obey me. And by the way, here's all I need you to do. Don't eat from that, that, that one right there, that tree. That's it. There's actually two trees they couldn't eat from. Semantics issue. But anyway. Now, in chapter 3, catch this. This is the fall, the great fall. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild, uh, of the wild animals the Lord God had made. By the way, there's a wordplay on wild here and wilderness and this whole idea that's not where humans belong. Um, I didn't make that point either. Just giving you a little bit more tips than the first service so you can just feel better about yourself for showing up late. Anyway, and he said to the woman, did God really say, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, she adds a little bit here, but the bottom, bottom line is in Genesis 3, she knows the word of God. She knows what God said. Now, she probably added a little legalism and says, yeah, we don't even touch it, okay? But she gets the gist, right? 
Then Satan says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And just so, guys, you can know that you were right there with her. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, by the way, guys, if you think, well, we're not actually the ones who actually disobeyed. She did. Before you get there, by the way, the command was only given to the guy. So the loser didn't even tell his wife. Or, well, we know she did, he did because the wife knew. But, like, he heard it from God himself. She just heard it from the man. And they both felt, so the men are the losers in this one. Okay, don't, none of this, like, Eve is the one who sinned. I've actually heard that, and I'm like, really? You, don't, you haven't read the scripture then. Adam and Eve, they eat from it. Now, here's the interesting. This is a temptation. Satan comes and brings a temptation. Notice the temptation. Food, it's desirable for eating. This food looks good. Life, you won't certainly die. Power, you will be like God. The temptations are the same. Genesis chapter 3, humankind gets to endure the temptation of Satan, and they fail. Israel gets to endure the temptation of the, of, the, of the Messiah, and they fail. And Jesus comes, 40 days, 40 nights, fast, he doesn't fail. He's offered life, he doesn't fail. He's offered power, he doesn't fail. He takes it on, and he says, Satan, Satan, the Word of God is all that matters. I have to trust my Father in heaven. I don't follow you. I don't bow down to you. I don't need your food. I don't need anything from you. Anything you say is a lie. Do you catch it? He's the perfect Adam. He, 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 he conquered it, Adam and Eve. He, he was the perfect Israel. He conquered it. That's the temptation of Christ right there, Matthew chapter 4. It's just retelling these stories, and he's saying, hey, this is the guy that's going to take care of business. How many of you remember the singer Carmen? Some old school Christians here, Carmen. Ah, Carmen. He had this old, he's a, he was a boxer, but he was a singer too, and he had a song called The Champion. If you, have, I almost played it for you, but then you guys would be like, that's weird. That guy listened to that? But anyway, but in The Champion, he's, he gives this motif of Jesus and Satan duking it out, you know, in a boxing match. At the very end, the, the, the song's just going, and at the very end it goes, and Jesus is the champion. And if you've ever gone to his concerts, everybody cheered, woo-hoo, you know. But right here, just real so subtly, Jesus just takes him out, and he doesn't use his power. He doesn't use the power of the angels. He uses the Word of God. The message is really simple. We need to worship God, we need to trust Him, and how you do those things, how you do those things is you obey His Word, which has an implication that you know His Word. We have to know the Word of God. And people go, Chris, how do you obey the Word of God? Well, you got to read it. You got to get in the Word of God on a regular, I would say, daily basis and read it. And you know what will happen? You don't have to be a theologian. God's Word isn't complicated. As you read it, you're like, huh, it makes pretty, pretty good sense. It's funny, I've had all these people for years, they didn't read you know, the Word of God in context, just starting at chapter 1 and moving on. 
there's a few passages that are kind of weird, and you're like, what? What just happened there? You just kind of like, you know, like me, just kind of got plow through it, just like, I didn't get it, let's just keep going. God's Word makes sense. It's pretty simple. At the very beginning of His Word, in Genesis chapter 2, He's like, worship and obey me. That's all He's doing there. Worship and obey me. When you worship and obey me, things are good. I will take care of you. I will, I will, I will take care of business. That's all he's saying. And when he's tempted by Satan, the very God himself just uses the word of God. He's just quoting scripture right back at him. There's nothing fancy. He's not like throwing like, you know, lightning bolts at him and stuff. He is just like, yeah, the word of God says this. You, know, you might try to deceive me with the word of God. You're trying to use it because Satan in the first two tries to use the word of God. But he's kind of twisting it a little bit. And then, Satan, and, then God, and then Jesus, rebel, he just fires right back and he goes, no, this is what the Word of God says. He becomes that perfect instrument of Israel. He becomes that perfect Adam and Eve who doesn't fall into the temptation. He is set. And in Matthew, that sets the stage for the Messiah and now the Messiah gets ready to do his, he's, it's time to finish it off. They sparred, Satan lost, and Jesus made sure of it. So what do you got to do to have the peace of Christ? Trust God. Worship God. Obey God. Let's talk about worship for just a second. What is worship? I already told you a little clue. In the Hebrew, the word for work and worship are the same thing. It's interesting, a lot of us think it's the music on the stage. That is not necessarily worship. That's a celebration, that's a celebration piece of worship. Okay, so this is how God designed it. It's all the way back in Genesis. You work, you worship during the week, which means you do a task upon the Lord, onto the Lord, and as you work, and everybody, everybody, I don't care what your career is, you can worship God as you work. It's the same thing. Work and worship are the same thing. You're just doing it unto, unto the Lord, right? You can be a dentist. You can be a you know, healthcare worker. You can be you know, a real estate agent. You can, anything, anyone, you can even be a cop. You can be a political activist, maybe, and worship the Lord <laughs> if you're doing it for him. So that is worship. Then we come on Sunday, and in expression of our worship in our work week, we celebrate through music. This is supposed to be the climax of our worship experience. Thank you, Lord, for using me in the service of you. That's worship. What's obedience? Just do what the Word of God says. We hope you come here every Sunday and hear the Word of God so that you will put it in your heart and you will go out and say, God, I want to do this. I want to obey you. What's trust? <laughs> That's a tough one. How many of you are micromanagers? Just raise your hand. You are. I mean, everybody, come on, let's go. Admitting it is the first, I think that's what they say, admitting it is the first step. No one's a micromanager. Come on, how many of you want some control? How many of you ever worried about how your kids are going to turn out? No one's raising their hands. Liars. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. Just, just, just give me the like, what up? What up, Doug? Come on, I ate? Come on. I mean, Eastridge is like so like conservative. Not really. We dress like wild animals, but yeah, we're... Okay. Someone told me I'm the most conservative dressed guy, and I'm like, I'm wearing Carhartts and a shirt. All right. 
we are all, we all want to manage our situation. That's what we want to do. We want control. You know, we do. We want control of our kids. We want control of our work situation. It's interesting when you look at the temptations of Christ. You know, I'm, and I'm going to think of this in husband and wife terms because it's easier. Just, just play with me for a second. Men, in general, they want power. They do. Even if it's just power over their backyard, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah, I'm middle management, but boy, you should see my lawn. You know, we want power. We want respect, actually. Men or women, we, we just want to live. We just want life for our family. What does that mean? Security. Don't let anything happen. The schools are bad. Guess what? Private school, baby. Put that hedge over there. You know? Husband, no, you don't, don't, don't change jobs. Don't change jobs. We got it made right here. Some of you are laughing because you can relate. I remember when I went in, I was making decent money in the medical world, and I came in and I said, "Hun, I really feel like I need to go into full-time ministry. That means we're going to make way less money. And, uh, and, and, and my wife, she, she handled it really well, but I know, I remember some family members like looking at us like, what are you going to do? We all want food. We all want life. We all want power. I mean, that's the basic of humanity. It's what actually drives most of our world. Those, uh, remember we talked about dialectical thinking, the oppressed and the oppressor, all that last week. I'll just say this real quick about socialism. The people in social activism want the power. Okay? I won't unpack that anymore because that's not important. What's important is understanding you can trust God or you can trust yourself. You can trust God or you can trust yourself. And I can ask every one of you face-to-face, I said, have you ever made a mistake in any decision you've ever made? And you would probably tell me yes multiple times. And I'm like, do you really want to trust that? Hold that thought for just a second. I got 14 minutes left. We even trust God in the, in the crazy things that happen in our life that when you look at it, it doesn't seem like we should be trusting God. When he takes the loved ones from us. When our children get hurt and broken out there. I mean... I know most of you parents, you just, that all you want is your kids to be okay. You know, we're having VBS this week. We'll have so many kids that come and parents who are agnostic at best. They'll come and you know, here's what, they'll tell you why. Yeah, this is going to be good for my kids. And my question back is like, this is good for your kids, but not for you. Hmm. Go figure that one out. But it's so true. In a congregation this big, there's so many of you out here like, ah, I don't think I believe in this. I trust myself. And I just like, <laughs> good luck. But here's the crazy thing. In Job chapter 1, he trusts God even through great tragedy. Listen to what happened to Job. If you don't know this story, just, just listen here and, and listen to, to this story. It's a crazy story. Job, this man, was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, ten kids. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people of the East. Okay, I don't own sheep and camels and oxen, but it sounds like a lot to me. sounds like he's doing pretty well, right? His sons, uh, his sons used to hold a feast in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So he loved God so much that after they would part, he's like, you know what, just to be sure, he would do the Old Testament sacrifices, which Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes care of for us finally on the cross. One day, the angels of the Lord came to present themselves before the Lord uh, and, and Satan also came with them. So interesting, we find out Satan and the Lord may have dialogues occasionally. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on all the earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan replies, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike him, everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now watch what happens. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sebans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Can you imagine that? I mean, just right now, just, I mean, just picture that you got all the bad news. Right now, it just came in. And this is what Job does. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell on the ground and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb with nothing. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the Lord, may the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. How do you trust and obey when God takes it all away? You know, one time a friend of mine asked me this. He says, hey, Chris, are you going to still follow the Lord if he takes all your children away and your wife? Boy, whew, that is a tough question. But I've come to the conclusion, yeah, I will. I won't, I won't be the same man. A lot of you guys will have to come alongside me and like get me out of bed. <laughs> You know, make sure I'm like surviving because that would be tough. I love my kids. I love my wife. My wife's the only woman in the world that will put up with me. She's the only one in the, if, you know, I used to tell her, if you die, I got to get married quickly. I got six kids. I don't know what to do. 
But I know in my heart of hearts, I would, say, I would get up and say, God, you gave me here. You got me here. I trust you. I trust that you know what you're doing. Even when tragedy of that magnitude hits, I trust in you. I want you to do a mental thought test with me real quick. I want you to think about this. Three times in Scripture we see, really four times in Scripture, we see, see Satan come on and he, and he takes on God and his will. He does it through Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He does it to Job. And he does it to Jesus. And, Jesus, oh, and he does it to Israel too. But in Job we actually see Satan. In Genesis 3 we get to see Satan. And in Matthew 4 we get to see Satan. And Jesus takes care of business. It's kind of ironic because Job is kind of this precursor look at the Messiah and the troubles he's going to go. In fact, one of the things Job asked for, because the rest of the book of Job basically is three friends show up, give him horrible advice, and he's just like, he stays blameless in the whole time. At the very end, God comes and encounters him. But the whole time, it's interesting, Job keeps saying, where is my advocate, Lord? Where is my advocate? He's basically like, where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Job, the whole book is like, how do we even come before you and talk about what you just did? I, I praise you, your will be done, but how do we do it? Where's my advocate? That's what Job's doing. That's the rest of the book. But I'm challenging you, even in the worst of the worst of the worst circumstances in your mind, do you trust God? So here's the mental thought test. How many of you planned and managed your existence on earth. You're all sitting here right now. Everybody take a deep breath. Right? How many of you got, how many of you planned your lungs and the air breathing and able to see, think, worship? How many of you planned that? You're sitting here. How many planned it? Come on, one person. Anybody? Anyone that big of a micromanager? You're here. You are sitting here right now in an air-conditioned building, nonetheless. You had your coffee. You just had worship. You got to listen to me for whatever time it's been. I don't know, like an hour or so. I don't know how long I've been up here, really. Honestly, I don't even care. <laughs> You're here. And you have a hard time trusting the God of the universe to get you there. Just think about this. In the universe, protons and electrons and neutrons, those are the little things that make up atoms, you know, make up our elements. Protons, electrons, and neutrons, you know how many of them there are in the universe? In the whole universe, 10 to the 80th power. <clears throat> that is one followed by, that is 10 followed by 80 zeros. It's actually one followed by 80 zeros. Okay? Protons, neutrons, and electrons. Got it? Everybody thinking about that? Okay. 200 billion stars roughly in the, in the Milky Way, and there's a couple hundred billion galaxies. And that makes up all of that 10 to the 80th power of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Everybody got the number, right? Okay, this is a fun, you know, drinking some beer, quote this to your friend. All right? Next. During the split second before our familiar quirks and electrons came into existence, the Big Bang, bang had to be finely tuned to produce a universe which we could live. 
And they say in here, quite finely too, theories vary. According to one, the, in the initial conditions of the universe, if the initial conditions of the universe were chosen randomly, there would only be a one, a one chance in 10 to the 120th power, that's one with 120 zeros after it, that the universe would allow life. Now, let's look at it. 10 to 180, protons, neutrons, and electrons in the universe, chance of us arriving from the Big Bang, 10 to the 120th power. There are more, there is a better chance of you picking one particular, let's say there's only one proton, neutron, electron in the whole universe, there's a better chance of you finding that one needle in the haystack than you coming by chance. That's what it's saying. How many of you, how many of you have got control in your own life right now, you think? You don't. Just wait till Wednesday. On Wednesday, you'll look back and go, yeah, I didn't have any control over that. Woo, that was awesome. We have nothing. We didn't get here. We have no reason. Naked I came from my mother's womb. This is it. We're here, though. And God's like, hey, you have an opportunity. You can worship me and obey me and trust me, or you can worship, you can worship yourselves, obey you, and trust yourselves. That's what our world's presenting. And I can guarantee you when you trust yourself, there's a lot of failure coming. There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of scary things. But when you trust God, when the failures and unknowns come, you're like, well, I think he's got this. Because I am here right now. And there wasn't much of a shot of me being here. God wants us to trust and obey him, to worship and obey him. This week, as you go to work and whatever that is, I don't, you know, no matter what it is, whatever you do, I want you to think, I do this for the glory of God. And I want to follow him. And here's what will happen the peace of Christ will begin to invade your life. And you don't worry about things as much now. Come on, I still do a little bit. And now I use God's word and say, Oh, he's got this. His grace is sufficient. Or uh, God's in charge. Give me his burden. Get, put your burdens on me. I just quote scripture. And almost, almost any time I can remember that, almost any time he immediately goes, oh, and relief happens. Because I, I still want control. I still want it. But I want it less because I rather have the peace of Christ in me. Are you ready? Are you ready to walk out the door the last weekend of July? Hot day. That's kind of like hell out there right now. Sorry, kids. <laughs> I really am. Anybody, any parent who kid, whose kid thinks that's okay, just love them, talk to me afterwards. I'll tell them, do not say that word. Are you ready to walk out the doors today? And begin to say, Lord, take control, because I suck at this. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, begin to take control of our lives here in the community of Eastridge. Help us to worship you 
daily in all we do. Help us to obey you and trust you. And Lord, give us the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding so that we may pass the peace of Christ on to others. There are so many people in our community right now, Lord, who don't know you, who have no idea where to put their faith, where to put their trust. Lord, help us to be used to bring the light to the world. And all God's people said, Amen.